Welcome. I've been asked to give a talk um, for the tea and talk. And in doing so, um, I was able to select the topic. And a lot of my, as, you, as most of you know, I teach the AP Art History here for the seniors at Oakcrest. And a lot of my students ask me about modern art before we even get to the modern art. Um, I think there's a lot of speculation about what they're going to see, what it's about, and, and how on earth did, our, did we ever get there artistically? You know, it's so obtuse at times. What is modern art? So I thought for this, this is as much as a learning curve for me, putting this presentation together. I was, I'm going to work with you to show you the bridge, bridge the gap between what is called neoclassicism, the art we all know, love, and re can relate to very easily when we go to museums or when we see art collections or art galleries, and then what happened to bring that very classical form of art into what we see today as um, modern abstractionism, cubism. Um, the topic is so huge that it's almost impossible to go into a lot of specific detail because you can get lost in the details. So I'm going to take it with broad strokes and um, show you some catalysts like photography and what was happening in the 19th century to bring art from one epoch and era and look into another. So we're going to concentrate on the 19th century and then we're going to look at Picasso and then a little bit of what happened after Picasso. Okay, so we'll start with there. And I'm not quite sure how, I've only given one of these talks before. I'm really open to questions, because especially in my class, questions help expand the, the, the dialogue and the conversation. So as I go through the slides, I have about 15 slides, 15 to 18 slides. I think I'm willing to take questions along the way. And if none come, then when we're finished, please jot them down and we'll go that way. So 19th century art from classic revival, neoclassicism, to modernism. This is a really big overview. Okay, so I want to start with this work here. And I was just talking to someone who said they're heading up to Manhattan this weekend. And this work, the Comtesse de Osseville, is actually at the Frick Museum. And if you've ever been to the Frick, you probably have seen this. It has a place of pride in the Frick. If you haven't, I highly recommend going. It's worth the $23 entry fee. I think the Frick is free on Thursday afternoons or Fridays, but um, it's worth it. So, um, yes? Sure. No, I can email them. Okay. So um, maybe what we can do is um, give me your email address in particular, okay. if, and I will make sure I send you this. Okay. If you'd like to take notes, that's fine too. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. So we're going to start with this lovely lady, the Comtesse de Ossonville. She's by a French portrait artist. His name is Ang. You would pronounce it Ang. It's spelled Ingres, I-N-G-R-E-S, but it's pronounced Ang. It's in the Frick Museum, and it was painted in 1845, which um, is considered the culmination of the neoclassic period. Uh, neoclassicism has a broad, both economic and political, meaning behind it. You know, Napoleon, the Napoleonic Wars, what was happening in France. France has now taken over the lead from Italy in terms of bringing art forward, bringing art into the 19th century. And this period of neoclassicism is a period in which artists are looking back and yet looking forward. So let's talk about her for a minute, and we're going to use her as a springboard to, for modernism. So the first is, obviously, it's a portrait. It's a portrait of a middle class to upper class comtesse. She's actually a woman of means. 
And when we look at the portrait, we see some of the details around her as well as the dress, the beautiful detailing and textile, textile feeling of her dress that define who she is. But there's other things about her that define who she is, more than just the material things, which Ang wants us to pay attention to. And one, in particular, is her pose. Her pose. She's very beautifully just const, you know, like relaxed there in front of her boudoir, in front of her table. Um, she's what we call, in painting terms, sculpture in the round. And that term might sound paradoxical, but what Ang has done here as he's taken this feeling of the mirror right behind her, and he's reflected her back. And when reflecting her back, he's showing us not just in one view, in one flat view, is he showing us her, the, the beauty of her shape and her round form, but he's also carefully delineating for us her back. And this is very important, because for a portrait artist of this time, of course, they want the sitter to look the best that they can be. Um, this is his bread and butter. This is how he makes his money. And the sitter wants to look as beautiful a form um, in the context of reality as he can make her to be. So we see up here with this beautiful arm that's just her casual pose. She's thinking. She's thoughtful. But in the back is where we see that beautiful, long, elongated neck, um, how the lower cut in the back here shows her beautiful skin tone. So the artist, by using that kind of play with light and dark and reflection, is really showing us a sculptural form. And a sculptural form is very classical, very neoclassical, as well as classical. It helps us appreciate the whole person, the whole form itself. But what else is beautiful about her is the full and rounded shape of her body. And in the 19th century, beauty was not thin and tan. Beauty was round and pale. And um, that was because when you had that fullness of form, that softness of form, that, that beautiful skin, that soft skin, it meant that you were from the upper class. It meant that you did not necessarily have to work for your living, that you lived in a, in an, a time of, um, or you lived in luxury, basically. Um, not everybody would be able to afford or have a portrait like this. So if you're going to invest with something like this, you wanted to be a, um, something that shows off your, your social status also. So her beautiful skin tone there, the roundness of her arm, these are, um, these are all techniques that the classist artist would have perfected. So we're calling this pose here, this very soft pose, this very casual pose, what's known as contrapposto. And I'm going to show that to you in another slide. We, we see the soft and roundness of her skin, the full rounded body, as something known as chiaroscuro, where they take a very um, simple form, like a round or a, a sphere or a, a tubular shape, and they just soften the angles to it carefully, and then do a very subtle shade and shadow to make it look like those, those high flesh tones. So this is what we see here. We see very easily delineated, like a tube, a tube form here, a shape, round face. We see the, the top of her hip form here is round. Her shoulders are even round and drop off there. So the, very, the round, the square, all of that is part of the classical definition and classical form. Another very important thing to just look at here is the actual use of perspective. So she's in the center of the portrait. She delineates the entire composition of the portrait. But we see a line back here that draws our vision to this corner. 
So she's juxtaposed against a blank space. Um, that color offsets her actual physical um, tone, her clear and ideal features. So this was the epitome of portraiture in the neoclassical time. Um, Ang would have made his living off of this and shown people in their best light using classical forms and features. So let's just go backwards now into this quick slide to understand what neoclassical is based off of the classical form. So I mentioned this word contrapposto. Contrapposto is, um, we're going to look at two things here. It's where the body is actually using the spinal cord as an S shape, S shape. And at the top of the S is the shoulder, right? It's right at the nape of the neck. And when we move one of our legs forward, we just naturally will lean on our, let's say I move my right leg forward, we'll naturally lean on our left hip, which naturally makes my right shoulder move up. So the nape of my neck now becomes, balances this kind of scale. Now, now my, my shoulders are on like a scale technique here. And, and my hip is now moving this way. So it's a contra, it's, an, it's, a, it's a posture that kind of like angles against itself. And yet, because of the beauty of our spine and the way where God made us, um, it's actually a relaxed pose. So it goes against our spine, but our spine has that flexibility. Well, the Greeks discovered this, and they discovered this after working centuries with this type of figure. This type of figure is called an archaic sculpture. It's also sculpture in the round. And she's known as a peplos kore. The kore is the Greek term. Peplos is because that's the type of garment she's wearing. This actually is a um, quite a um, avant-garde piece for its day, because what would have predated this uh, piece would have been the Egyptian. Okay, the Egyptian profile pose, or the Egyptian, what we call that, that power pose. You know, like, mm. <laughs> that's it, you know. And Egyptian poses, because they, they have that, are usually emerging from rock or some type of stable element to show their, because they're going to take these sculptures into the afterlife, show some type of longevity. It's going to last for all eternity. The Greeks said, you know what, we don't really think that same way. So we're going to carve it completely out of one piece of rock. So there's a philosophical change, a philosophical shift here. So you can walk completely around her, and you can see the delineation of this peplos both in the front off of her hip as well as in the back. The fact that this arm is now coming up is pretty different you know, from what the Egyptians would have done. The, um, the Greeks took risks with that. And as you can see, they lost on this one <laughs> because it broke off. And um, anything, any sculpture that you see where the arm or the legs are starting to move away from the body okay, is mean that we're, work, we're moving farther and farther into Greek classicism and then Greek Hellenism, where they perfected this actually very passionate emotional form and the use of that form. But for the sake of this talk, we're going to stay just at the contrapposto period. So the Greeks looked at this and we said, they said that we love it, we like it, it's different. It's animated, it moves. They, it, it actually moves. And not only that, but she has personality. We're going to look at this and go, personality? You've got to be kidding. But they have, they developed what was called the archaic smile, okay? So very, in a very subtle way, and you're just going to watch me here. The Greeks, the Egyptians are, and the Greeks are, okay? That little bit of change is the difference between a dynastic king and an everyday person that would have walked down the street in a Greek Acropolis or a Greek Agora, and you would have met, okay? The delineation of the hair, how it softly folds, comes down off of her head, 
onto her shoulders down, and it kind of frames in her bosom area. This is a real person. To the Greeks, this was a real person. This is somebody, they would have done many of these sculptures in the round, and they would have had them lining um, uh, the Athenian way that led up to the Propylia to lead to the Acropolis, which would have encouraged that, that um, you know, the Greek uh, populace to promenade up to the Acropolis. So she's a very important figure. Um, but when the Greeks figured this out, Praxiteles is one of the earliest Greek sculptures that said, this is great, and we've done a lot, but she still seems a little stiff to me, because when you look at people walk, they're moving much more. So the Greeks were not tied down by the philosophical restraints that the Egyptians were. They were willing to experiment and try different things. And you kind of think it went from this to this overnight, but it actually took a couple centuries, two or three centuries, before they actually got this curve in the back of the spine correct. And they were able to move the, the arms and the legs away from the main torso of the body. But that happened through this use of contrapposto. That has never left the vocabulary of the artist. Even your contemporary artists today, most probably 99% of them are going to be able to draw in the contrapposto position. Everybody learns that. Everybody knows that to animate something, you're going to, you're going to work off that central core of the body. And I'm going into this for some, you'll, you'll see why. So later on, Michelangelo, during the Renaissance, during high classical, the Hellenistic period, they're going to take that form and they're going to twist it and move it and put mythological themes against it. And that's where we see the, the real high passion and, and the, the wow with it. So contrapasso is just one part of neoclassicism. And if we go back, uh, we don't have time to go over every one of these. But um, the clear and ideal features of the classical artist is really important because for example, the Romans believed in what was called verism. Verism is that all the lines on your face would be shown in sculpture. Why? Because that delineated um, wisdom, family, family um, hierarchy and authority. So that was a good thing. That was a beautiful thing. Not for the Greeks. The Greeks idealized the figure. So different philosophies, different ways of thoughts, and I can show you examples of all this, but then we get stuck in the Greeks. So, but very important because as we move to the moderns, we're going to see a certain shedding of these ideas. A certain, I, I, don't, I hesitate to use the word rejection, although it does apply, um, but a, a certain shedding. And there's many reasons why these ideas were shed in the modern period. So contrapposto. And the first, so we're, we're taking a leap. We, we're, we're looking at a fine art now in the early to mid-19th century, 1840s, 1830s. We looked at the culmination of portrait based off of classical form. In a sense, they're there, okay? Um, and what shows up on the scene, okay? So what, you know, 1837, about 10 years before Ang did the Comtesse d'Ansonville, you see the very first still life in studio taken by this man named Louis-Jacques Mond Daguerre. Have you ever heard of daguerreotypes? Early, you know, okay, early glass um, frames in which film was actually processed with chemicals. So this uh, photographer was one of the first to experiment with the concept of chiaroscuro, light and dark, in a very controlled situation um, with a still life. Okay, 1837. And he, it took him time and time again to figure out 
how long you expose the lens, what kind of light is going to it, what type of chemicals to achieve this type of photograph. When he finally achieved this, this was earth shattering. This is about the same as Bill Gates' point and click, okay? <laughs> so before, computers were, you had to put in the C, I actually remember this, C, and then you wrote in a word, and you put enter, you know what I mean? And then you put DOS, and then you put enter, okay? So it's very cumbersome how you got through into a computer. And within a year, I think Apple came out with the Apple. And it was basically you pointed to an icon, you clicked it, and it changed the screen. Didn't you ever think, how on, what was that? You know, <laughs> like, what was that? And um, that, that year, year and a half, two years that it took, was about the same with this, okay? So when this became public, this first you know, photograph, it shook the art world down to its toes, okay? It, you know, fine artists looked at it like, what good are we? I mean, like, now you can point and click, basically. And you can get an image that is fairly accurate to reality, if not completely, just another offshoot of reality. So now we go back, and we're starting to see, wow, you know, like, she looks like a painting. She looks like, does she really look like that? Now I'm going to start to question that. You know, I'm starting to think differently about that. Okay, I'm going to show that even more stronger. So then they took it to the next step, because artists in the 19th century were not um, ignorant of what neoclassic uh, principles were. They knew the neoclassics were looking back into the fundamental principles of classicism. And they were saying, well, gosh, okay, if they're doing this with, with portrait painting, how can I do this using new technology in new ways? So here we see on a flat screen, on a flat piece of paper, Nadar, who's a very uh, famous French um, photographer who learned from Daguerre, he's actually doing a self-portrait. But if you notice, he's doing it in multiple frames. But how did he do that? How did he sit there and get himself as a portrait in the round using photography? Did he have these, I mean, how, can anybody guess, now I'm teaching you at my class, can anybody guess how he would have done this? Don't worry, I'll tell you. So what he did was he put himself on a stool that rotates, basically, and he set up cameras in the 360, and he put a string on the ground between his foot and the, the camera lens, okay? So by now, 1865, they figured out a little bit faster shutter. They know a little bit more about the actual way of um, helping to move the picture along as it actually is pro processed. And as he slowly moves around, he clicks each frame with his toe, okay? And he takes a picture of himself in, a, in the round, okay? So now we see, basically, using a technological instrument, what's known as sculpture in the round. And he actually has time to even pose himself. Puts his head up, we see that long neck, he puts his head down, we see his full back and everything. No more need to show perspective, to show mirrors, to trick the eye. The, uh, the camera can do what used to be a very difficult and highly rele relegated work of art in a very small community of people that could do that work of art. Now the camera can do that. So, so sequential frames taken as the sitter rotates on a stool, how to view a two-dimensional picture from every angle. Okay, this is important. We'll go to the next. So I wanted to show you this, 1864, about the same time. So when we look at Daguerre's um, Nadar's photo of, of himself, 
we see a scruffy man, right? And we see someone who's experimenting, and he's, he's um, I don't know if it's just because he's a guy or he's a photographer, but he's not that worried about how he just, he just wants to himself photograph, basically. But Sarah Bernhardt's a different story, okay? She was, as we know, the greatest diva of her time in the 1860s. She's one of the first divas to have herself photographed. Um, but not just photographed, but photographed by an art photographer, okay, of the time. And if you look at this piece, they've captured it. So within less than 30 years, maybe 23 years, they've captured art as a, almost as a fine art. Because look at the gradation of gray tones. Look at her neck and how her, her, you almost see that contrapposto slowly appearing here on her shoulder and the way she's holding here. We see the velveteen of that dress. We see you know, her, the, the way her eyes are off to the left, the way her hair frames her face. She's a work of art, okay? and photography now has realized that. Well, this, again, is, is, is scaring the art world to death. Okay, so now anybody can go and have their photograph done, even if you're wealthy, you know, and go and have it done for, I don't know, two pence and six shillings, you know, um, and, uh, or, or possibly more. Yes. Yes. Yes, and that is mostly in how the film was processed. So we're moving from processing on glass and different types of glass and chemicals on glass um, to actual, it's, it's not um, microfiche as we know it today. It's not a plastic material, but more of a film material. Because um, within another 10 years, you're going to have first motion pictures. I show this to my kids. Um, and. Um, Edison actually, within another ten years, is going to have film on a, you know, film actually as we know it. Yes, that's a great question. I I haven't approached that, but um, that is how is the picture actually received by the the audience, and that. So let's go back real quick. That ability to look directly at the audience and engage the audience is very important in um, successful portraiture. At the National Gallery of Art, the Napoleon is doing that. You know that big Napoleon portrait there? So yes, that is very important of inviting us in and actually into her space. Like she's not afraid to do that. The one I picked of Sarah Bernhardt, she's not. She's looking away. But there are, and, um, but there are plenty of portraits that show them looking directly at the camera also where that engagement is just as direct in the camera. So um, that did cross over quite seamlessly from one to the other. Um, so let's just look. I wanted to show these two together now, OK? And it's kind of like I don't at all want to belittle this. And I don't want to belittle portraiture. To this day, we have wonderful portrait artists, right? I'm, I'm pointing to Debbie Duffy here. and. Um, <laughs> who work in the classical mode and do classical work. So portraiture has in no way in the classical form has gone out of um, vogue or out of importance in, in culture or society. I'm trying to help you see what kind of like technology and what pivoted the change into the moderns. So we're talking about a group of people now that were fine artists. They had attended the Ecole des Francaises, the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. They had gone to schools. They were considered in society in general as the top artists at the time. Um, and they were patronized that way. 
Um, in France, you had the Royal Society in London, which was an evocative form of judgment in terms of like who were great artists. If you could show at the, at the Royal Academy and get your work in a show there, you were probably made for life in terms of being able to work as an artist, okay? Um, that's starting to break down now a little bit with the advent of photography. But we're gonna flip back into the arts, into oils. Um, but when you look at these two together now, my eye says there's a sophistication to this and there's a reality to this that almost makes this look like a cartoon. And I, I don't, again, I don't wanna disparage this at all, it is. But, but, but thinking about how um, extant photography became at the time and how easy it was to have a photographic image made of yourself, this became rarer and rarer, this type of movement, okay, in, in the fine arts. Um, again, very good. I know. You can touch it. Exactly. And that's what was trying to be and was achieved here quite beautifully. That's why it's great to see this picture in person. She's up over a mantelpiece and she's still looking at you. And you do want to touch that picture. I mean, it's, it's in the frick in, uh, in New York. So, um, field trip. <laughs> But I picked Sarah Bernhardt because she's one of the best. And um, the American art uh, photo uh, photographer that's going to be born out of this type of portraiture, his name is Ansel Adams. And he's going to be, he's going to photograph a lot of immigrant movement from Europe to here. We actually study that in my AP class. And he's going to do a lot of portraiture work too. And he's going to bring it to America because he studies over there in Europe. But I just wanted to show you that change and what the change is doing. So now let's go into a little bit of philosophy. What is beauty? These are, these are the questions now that artists are starting to ask themselves. Oh my gosh, you know, like what is beauty? If the camera can capture an image so accurately and so quickly, what is there left to capture in oils? You know, like a still life uh, of, of flowers or a still life of, you know, objects of, of whatever. Um, that, can be, that can be, you know, photographed with a camera. Neoclassicism, romanticism, portraiture, is with us today, so they remain legitimate forms, but there were growing groups of artists that sought to approach the canvas not by reproducing reality or by recreating classical modes, but by giving an impression of that reality to the viewer. So there is, and you see where I'm going with this, there was a group of artists that said, gosh, you know, painting is painting. Painting is what it is. It's my eye looking at it and translating that to a two-dimensional, let's call it what it is. And it makes an impression on my eye and I'm, it's like a process and I'm making that impression on the canvas. So it's an impressional thing. Why do we have to duplicate reality when reality can all now be du re duplicated even more perfectly? Again, there were plenty of artists that weren't asking those questions and were continuing in the classical mode to this day. So it, had it has never stopped being a legitimate form of art, classical, but it gave rise to some of these philosophical questions that brought this to the fore, okay? Now, for us to understand the importance of this, in the, in, this is France, this is Monet, uh, one of his very first works, oh, I'm sorry, it's not one of his very first works, um, I'm gonna go to this one, which is one of his very first works, 1858, this is called View from Roulet, you know, he's asking himself, do I want to 
do a perfectly landscaped picture, you know? And he's saying no. But to say no, how did he say no, you know? He's treating the canvas as a two-dimensional palette, just like this wall here. Now I can do a little demonstration. If I treat, this is a two-dimensional surface, right? And if I draw a round line like this, that's a circle, okay? It's, two, it's, two, it's flat, right? But if I go like this and add another little line to it, it becomes a sphere. Do you see that? Do you see it? Do you see the sphere? It becomes three-dimensional, okay? Another way of doing it is you can go like this. I just added a line, and now it becomes a sphere. Okay, so this two-dimensional surface, now this looks, it's tricking my eye, it looks three-dimensional, you know? How did I do that? I did that by two lines. Okay, Monet said, I don't want to do that anymore. They've been doing that for centuries. The Renaissance did it, the classics did it, the Greeks did it, the Romans did it. I want to do something different. So what he did, I'll leave that up there. So what he did, he said, I'm going to treat that canvas as two-dimensional. And I'm going to see what color can do for me. If color can do, add that depth, add that light, add that breadth, add that perspective without me having to make fundamental, um, you know, divide the canvas up and make it an arithmetic, you know, piece out of it, which is what the classics did with, with canvas. So he's going he's gonna to take color, he's going to be outside, and he's going to just start adding color to the palette quick. Quick brushstrokes. He just getting the impression of the clouds, and to do that, and to do that successfully, as this team of artists did at the time, was quite monumental. Okay, so they produced a body of work treating the canvas in two dimension that has never really been seen before. So when this was first came out into the art world, it was flatly rejected as like cartoonish or something that was juvenile. Okay, because as you can see. There's very little, there's only delineation in, I'll just go back here. There's very little detail. All the detail is achieved by color delineation here. Strokes of red. It's very hard to see this. This is at the National Gallery of Art, if you want to go look at this. I bring my class, all my classes, to see this piece. And we talk about this piece. So treating this, he just tr treated the light off in strokes of green, pieces of green dots, okay, all along the canvas. He did broad brush strokes. So now the Impressionists are talking about color, technique, brushstroke, flat canvas. They're not talking about um, contrapposto, one-point perspective, modeling space with um, lights and darks. They're, they're saying, we accept this as a flat space, and let's see what sort of dimensionality we can get out of it using color and light. And they succeeded. They succeeded. They succeeded in the sense that we can relate to this piece because it has jewel tones. It, there's movement in here. These lily pads are moving along this, this riverway or this gauntlet here. This tree is just, you can see the drooping feeling of it. Here's a, photo, here's a photograph of that same area. With that. Here's the footbridge in the back. Do you see it? And the, they're both just as beautiful one is to the other. So the, they know they had something. The Impressionists knew they had something. They didn't quite know how much until they went to the Ecolet, the Beaux-Arts, and they wanted to do a show. And I don't know if you know a little history of the Impressionists, but when they went to do their show, they were flatly rejected. They were told, this is not the place for you. This is not the kind of art we, we do. We do the Comtesse de Onsonville. So 
they got together. Monet was already working with Renoir at the time. And they put together, this is the birth of what we call like the salon or the small sort of atelier. They put together four or five of their like-minded artists that were experimenting in these techniques out in the country at each one of their different homes or whatever, and they put on their own show. They, put, they rented a space, they put their money together. We're really talking starving artists here. Now they're worth millions, but back then, nobody really wanted them. They, nobody knew what they were. And they were rejected publicly. So they put on their own show. And um, this is where um, the birth of modernism, and it takes so many different directions, OK? So we're, this is 1899. Let's keep going. Um, I like showing this one, St. Lazar Station, 1877. So it's right between photography coming of age and, um, and this, you know, this other one. This, the, the impressions are in full gear here. And what do we see is we see a train station, a very mundane, quotidian, daily sort of subject matter. There's nothing spectacular about trains. If anything, they're dirty, they're smelly, right? They're crowded with people. And yet, in this impressionistic work, okay, we see something in which the contrast, I'm going to just point out a few ideas here. We see the open air here of this metal and the, the open grate here for the sun, and it comes down, and it reflects, and it becomes a bookend to reflect the light off the buildings in the back. This, nothing about this is delineated in specificity. Okay? This is fast, quick brush strokes. The, the very smoke itself merges into the clouds of the sky. So it gives an impression of this train station. It's an actual pretty nice place to be. You know, it's a very nice, airy. Even the people moving about have space. It gives us a sense of space and openness. It's, it's pretty gone. Yeah. They know most moderns are people who break with the traditional modern forms. And in art appreciation, for example, you teach all the modern forms, you know, like light, shape, form, all that. They know how to render with those forms. So you have to almost be able to um, embrace something before you can reject it or move beyond it. Um, OK, so they're moving beyond. Uh, quick brush strokes and light. So at the age of 22, Monet, Monet joined the Paris studio of the Swiss artist Charles Glaire, Glaire, where he met fellow students Renoir, Sicily, and Basile. The young artist experimented with the effects of light using broken color and rapid brush strokes, which later became known as Impressionism. So this is really the birth, and, and some people will argue with me, and agreeably, that um, Turner, um, who is an English artist, was really the beginning of the avant-garde modern period. I'm not going to show you Turner because we can go off on that. But the French are really known for this. And, the, and museums are packed with this, this. So that's why it's good to start. Because um, what they achieved in that 30-year 30 period, 30 period of time changed art forever in the higher circles of um, art um, rendering and art sales. Uh, here's what here's the the railway taken from another view, and we see this is I believe this is Renoir, and again they're playing he's playing with color here very mundane subject matter but you see how she has a blue dress 
with a little white um, cloth with a little puppy, and how she has a white dress with a little blue sleeve there to delineate her waist. See how her hair is long and flowing and, and drapes and frames that body that's still in that little bit of contrapposto position. Yeah. I think it's a Renoir. Did I say Manet? I think it's Renoir. Oh, sorry. I think I said Renoir, and I wrote Manet. So thank you for that correction. Yes, this one's here. Um, and how her hair is up. You see how her hair is up? How she has a hat and her hair, and she just has that little band. So in terms of compositional, this, this sense of having the viewer contact or work with the piece, be, been drawn in, they're working a lot more with play of color, form, and shape. She's, she also has a slight contrapposto position here. She's engaging us. But the subject matter, again, is back down to everything that we can relate to in our everyday lives. Beautiful work. This appealed very much to the bourgeois, bourgeois growing middle class in France and um, was very much collected by them. So let's just look. With Impressionism, the use of linear perspective was not important. The artist worked the canvas as a two-dimensional object with color, creating the third dimension. Okay, that was a principle of Impressionism. Two, with Impressionism, the effect of brushwork as hidden, you know, giving that pearl-like jewel tones, um, and fine gives way to visible brush strokes. They're not afraid for technique to be seen to be shown. And we're going to see this with moderns It's coming after. You know, if it's collage, let's see it as collage. Um, thick application of paint and rapid application, not waiting for the paint to dry. Okay? And third, with Impressionism, the subject matter and a composition was not dictated by a patron or a school, but the artists themselves. Okay? They used unfamiliar models or simply city and country locations. So art now is coming down to the us, you and me, you know. Uh, we may not be able to afford a Monet, but initially, possibly we could have. And that's probably why some speculate, you know, by the turn of the century, Impressionism actually went with a dip dive in terms of um, actually um, acquiring it. But many people acquired it because it was affordable at the time. The artists needed to sell their work, and it wasn't all the rage until almost 20 or 30 years after these people had been working. So from Impressionism 1860s, we moved, I'm going to make a big leap to Cubism. And how am I doing with time? Am I doing OK? Six minutes, OK. So, um, and this is why it's so hard to encapsulate this. But if you really like it, I can fill in gaps, and we can do another one with filling in the gaps. So um, within 40 years, artists from all over the world would begin to experiment with new ways to apply paint to a canvas. They were no longer um, like like handcuffed by having to be accepted at a school. If they could form their own atelier or have a, um, a wealthy patron like support them, they were on their way to developing their own little um, clique of art or art school or art studio. This became huge between 1890 and then into the 20th century. And I had down in my notes one of the biggest collectors at the time was Peggy Guggenheim. So Peggy Guggen the Guggenheim family um, dates right before this period where their, um, their wealth is building. And Peggy Guggenheim is born in 1898. And by the, by the time she has her coming out, which is right around the turn of the century when Cubism is at the fore, is new now, just like Impressionism, Cubism is new. 
Peggy Guggenheim is going to travel to France. She's going to look at this, and she's going, oh my gosh, this is fabulous. Peggy Guggenheim said that. You didn't say that. I didn't say that. A lot of other people hadn't even seen it. But she said that, and she had the means and the capability to promote that. And this is a very important when we look at modern art and the promotion of modern art and what we see as modern art today. One thing I like to show my students is an auction. I go to, I show them a Sotheby's auction and they see like this big white canvas with this big red dot on it and it goes for $40 million and they all freak out on me. And, um, and that's, that concept of uh, patronage, um, value now to a larger audience, be, adds not only to the subjectivity of art and the value of art, but it allows artists the ability and the desire to experiment more, okay? So modernism is born out of many different things, if you capture my, my gist. Okay, so no ways to express subject matter, new ways to express themselves on war, politics, economics, class struggles, etc. So loosely, Impressionism is 1865 to 1885. Manet, Monet, Renoir, um, Marie Cassette, I think I spelled that wrong. Um, Post-Impressionism. Is 1885 to 1910 Van Gogh, Gauguin, Cezanne. I could do war. I could go over all this with you, because they fill the gap between impressionism and what we're going to look at in cubism. But visually, they're very similar. So I didn't want to just go on with that. Fauvism and expressionism, 1900 to 1935 Matisse, Kandinsky, Chagall, born out of the First World War, things that are happening politically and economically around Europe. And now we're just going to look briefly at cubism and Pablo Picasso and Brock. Pablo Picasso um, was born in 1890, and um, he's going to do this, okay? 1910. He's, he's less. He's almost 20 years old, okay? When he does this, nobody understood this at the time. So he said, okay, okay, and he did this, just to show that he. He understands the principles of classicism, and it's, it's kind of interesting how similar this is to the Comtesse de Hossonville. He's in a corner here. He's got something at chair rail height. He's looking. He's still looking off. He's got a little bit, you know, nice pose. You know, it is the same subject. Okay, so this man's name is Ambrose Boyard, and he was an art dealer who was one of the first to look at cubism and say, with Peggy Guggenheim. There's something different and new here, and I'm going to promote this, okay? And why I show this to my students is this is one of the best examples of if you look at that face and look at that face, you caught it, but there is a personality there. Now, what happens in cubism? So Impressionism, the artists are still loosely working. They're working with this flat canvas, and they're letting, and they have successfully let color and light dictate depth and um, entering into it. You know, that little bit of one point. There's still movement going on using that color and light. Picasso says, forget that. We can go even more basic. We can take the, we can take the human form, which is made up of squares and triangles and, and, and parallelograms and hexagons and that's that you can do that. And we're going we're gonna to break it down to even more fundamental forms and never lose the psychology of the person, the, the thought, the idea of who the person is. Not any, just anybody can do that. Okay? And when Picasso did that, what Monet did for the Impressionisms, Picasso did 
for modernism. He borne out this way of looking at the canvas and looking at the, the human person even more fundamental, you know, as a breakdown of form. So we're taking these classical forms that were always um, um, celebrated, you know, as round and, you know, and we're breaking them down into their most, you know, insignificant shape. We're overlapping them. It almost looks like there's um, like chaos on the canvas, and yet it holds tightly together, you know. And that is Cubism at its best. Uh, this is Picasso when he was right around 1904 when he was experimenting with early Cubism, and this is Picasso later on in life. I do this because um, Picasso is really a unique unto himself. He did high quality art. Um, let's go back up. He did this type of quality art throughout his entire life. So when he was experimenting with like the blue period or the cubist period or I mean the big fat women period which I don't show my class because it's just you know it's like the reduction of women. He, um, it goes into which is modernism too the psychology of the artist. Like what is what is his thinking? What is he going into as he does? So when you and I and I don't want to go into it totally with Picasso. I could we could do one if you want on Picasso, but his his for example his relationship with women, his relationship over time, his his maturity through the Spanish Civil War. Um, there's a very famous piece on uh, at the Museum of Modern Art, um, and it just went out of my head um, that he did. So his his. His art is changing with his psychology and his view of the world, which is, is, and because he was such a huge figure in the art world, he catapults different artists, okay, into the art world. Um, so this is Harlequin, Picasso Harlequin, 1918, a little bit after he does the cubism, but here he's even reducing it more. He's experimenting with color, and he's, 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 he's out of the neutral ranges here, and he's experimenting with high color, and um, this is called, again, you understand it as a clown. You understand he's got this guitar. He's playing with his hand. But he's, fun, he's engaging you with his eyes. But again, he's even in a corner of a room. But do you see how he has, it's like deconstructed the form, OK? So Cubist art movement began in Paris around 1907, led by Pablo Picasso and George Brock. The Cubists broke from centuries of tradition in their painting by rejecting the single viewpoint the idea of any sort of perspective of anchoring. And this left people very like unsure of themselves. Um, the viewer, for sure, because your eye just jumps all around and what am I supposed to look at? That, that was intentional. Um, but also, it never lost it, that ability for you to discover in art. And essentially, what's going to happen in modern art is that it's going to reduce even more and more and more. And it's going to demand more of the viewer to discover more and more and more. And the intention of the modern artist is going to be not to define anything for you, but to, in, in a sense, exalt or express the subjectivity of art and allow that to speak to you. And that, essentially, I'm going to end on this, is going to be the value and worth of the art as it goes, as we get deeper, deeper into the moderns. Um, I just put this, is this my last slide? Oh, no, I have a couple more. Um, this is um, Cezanne. Cezanne predated the Picasso period, and you can see how he's using those flat brush strokes. Again, I can do this later. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll kind of end here. So you get the idea. 
Um, but this is Joseph Albers, 1965. He's one of my favorite artists. I love him. He's complete reduction, complete reduction of shape and form. Um, he's, he has these series called Homage to a Square. But I love to challenge the viewer with this and just ask them fundamentally, is this square receding or protruding from the canvas? And I'll leave you with that.